You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. If you are listening to this podcast, then I reckon that that means that you have taken in your fair share of true crime within your life. You then know that nearly any podcast has taken the time to warn people against the pitfalls that can come in the world of online dating. Sites like Tinder and every other dating site that has popped up essentially have turned dating and hookup culture into a game of window shopping, and movies and shows like the ones on the Tinder Swindler have shown the world that there certainly can be and are fears out there. This week, we're going to cover another case that shows what can happen if you swipe and meet the wrong person online. Sadly, not everyone is as innocent as they appear, and scarier than that, many people are very good at creating fake personas to get what they want. Many of us have encountered our fair share of dirtbags in the dating world, whether online or offline, but sadly the gross comments and the disrespect for women is not the depths of the monsters that you can find if you aren't extra careful. It's sad, but true, that we live in a world where something as innocent as a date can turn into something as sinister as murder. Hello, my name is Lance, and welcome to episode 88 of Gone But Never Forgotten. Monsters have weaponized online dating. The murder of Grace Mullane. Grace Mullane was a 21-year-old woman when she embarked upon a gap year vacation in South America and then headed for New Zealand. She had just graduated from the University of Lincoln with a bachelor's degree in advertising and marketing. Grace was a very talented artist from an early age, and she absolutely loved life. She loved to go on adventures, and she loved doing and trying new things. She was always a positive person, according to everyone that knew her. She was from a middle-class family, something that certain corners of the media would attack later, saying that was why this case got so much attention. Grace's adventure started in South America, where she would spend six weeks, and then she landed in New Zealand on November 20th of 2018. When she first arrived in New Zealand, she spent 10 days exploring the Upper North Island. On November 30th, she would wind up in Auckland. 
December 1st would be the last time that anyone heard from Grace, though, which was incredibly strange because her 22nd birthday was on December 2nd, and she didn't respond to anyone's birthday wishes. On December 5th of 2018, a missing persons report would be filed, and police would initially say that there was no evidence of foul play. I understand that at that point in time that they didn't have any evidence of foul play, but that would be because they didn't have any evidence at all other than the fact that a young lady was missing. I do understand that police need to do a balancing act in order to prevent mass hysteria and panic, but it does strike me as weird that they go out of their way to say that they don't suspect foul play. Detectives would start to dive into Grace's social media accounts to see if they could track her down, or get a lead on where she may have been, or where she may be, and who she might be with, or may have been with. What they noticed was that a man named Jesse was the last person to comment on anything on her Facebook page, so they called him in for some questioning. When Jesse Kempson came in for questioning, he was very cooperative, and he was very confident. He seemed to carry himself with an air of someone that didn't have anything to hide. He told investigators that he and Grace had talked on Tinder, and they had quickly agreed to meet up for a drink. He said the date went well, and then the two had a fair bit to drink that evening. While on the date, Grace would be texting one of her friends, and she told her that she and Kempson were having cocktails, and that Kempson was a manager of an oil company. Grace would go on to say that Kempson had found out that her birthday was the next day, and that they were going to get smashed to celebrate. Her friend jokingly asked Grace how she always managed to meet new people, and asked her if she could teach her the ways. Kempson said that after the two got drunk, they went their separate ways, and he said that he didn't even remember how he got back to the City Life Hotel, where he lived full-time. He said that he was pretty sure that the concierge had told him that he helped him to his apartment because he was so intoxicated. He then said that he woke up around 10 a.m. the next morning, and that was the next thing that he remembered. Instantly, the investigators realized that they were on to something, because they had already received closed-circuit television from inside of the elevator at the City Life Hotel that showed Kempson on the elevator at 8.14 a.m. Kempson was shown the photo of himself on the elevator at that time, and he actually simply doubled down and said that he was confident that it was closer to 10 a.m. that he woke up. Kempson had previously shown a little bit of nerves when he asked if he was being charged with something, and then at this point he asked the investigator if he had something that he wanted to ask him. The detective asked him if he was sure about being in a drunken stupor, and if he was sure that he woke up at 10 a.m. Both times Kempson responded, yep, to both questions, and stood by the story that he initially told. The investigator then told Kempson that at 8.14 a.m. he was indeed on the elevator and he had a suitcase with him. 
At that point, Kempson finally says that maybe he has the time incorrect, but says that if the detective was implying that he did something with a suitcase, the suitcase was still in his apartment, and he said that the investigators could have the suitcase. I found that that was a weird reaction by Kempson. I would say that if someone asked me about being on an elevator with a suitcase, my first reaction wouldn't be to seemingly defend myself about removing something from my room. It was a weird leap, and obviously the investigators thought so as well. They realized that Kempson either was legitimately wrong about the time that he woke up, or he was lying. They needed to find out which, because they obviously could not keep him in custody based on the fact that they thought he was lying. They had no evidence to charge him with anything. At that point, Kempson was released, but investigators had enough information to get themselves a search warrant for Kempson's apartment. What they found in that apartment, though, was damning. One of the things that investigators used was luminol to see if there was the presence of body fluids in the apartment and the room It lit up with bloody footprints and lots of blood marks all around the room. At the same time, police had been checking CCTV in Auckland, and they had confirmed that Grace was in Auckland's business district with Jesse around 9pm, and then 15 minutes later, she was seen at Sky City, and the last time that she was seen was at 9.41pm at the City Life Hotel on Queen Street. And she was with Jesse Kempson. At that point, of course, Kempson was taken back into custody and returned to the station for more questioning, this being on December 8th of 2018 at 3 p.m. This time, Jesse's story changed. He said that he remembered leaving the bar with Grace and that the two of them were heavily intoxicated, as he said in the first story. The next thing that he remembered was that he was in his apartment with Grace. He said that the two started to get intimate and that Grace told him that she was into BDSM and more aggressive sex. He said that Grace told him to hold her arms tight and then she told him to grab her by the throat and choke her. Kempson then said that the next thing he remembered was waking up after falling asleep in the shower at 6 a.m., and that was when he realized that Grace was dead inside of his apartment. Jesse then said that he was in shock, and he didn't know what to do because he knew that nobody was going to believe him if he said that she had died on her own inside of his apartment. He would then explain to investigators that he full-out panicked, and he drove to the Waitakeries, which is a small, mostly rural area, to the northwest of Auckland that is heavily forested and rugged. He said that he went there, dug a hole, and buried a suitcase that had the remains of Grace inside. Jesse was officially charged with murder on that date, December 8, 2018. Investigators would go to the area that Jesse indicated, and they indeed found a suitcase that was buried in a very shallow grave that contained Grace Mullane. Her body was found on December 9th, 
off of Scenic Drive. So, at this point, officers were looking at really one of two things. They either had a cold-blooded killer on their hands who had likely planned to kill Grace, or they had a man who was what he said, a man who got spooked and didn't want to spend his life in prison because of something that he didn't do. Obviously, more investigating was going on while all of this happened, and a lot would come to light that certainly showed, in my opinion at least, that he was much more guilty than protecting his tale. When analyzing his activity on the internet, investigators found that he had searched things like duffel bags and suitcases. He had also googled car rentals. He also had searched flesh-eating birds, and he searched to find out if there were vultures in New Zealand, and even googled, quote, hottest fire, unquote. Finally, he also had researched the Watakeri Ranges. Investigators also found that Kempson was a prolific user of Tinder. He would be speaking to dozens of women at any one time, regaling them with stories that were made up about who he was, who he knew, and what he did for a living. Perhaps the most haunting thing was that on the same morning that Kempson said that he found Grace dead in his hotel room, he was on a date with another woman from Tinder. While on the date, the woman that he met with said that he seemed distant and lost in his thoughts. She said that he also had told her that he was friends with a lot of police officers, and that they were currently baffled because they were having a lot of disappearances in the Watakeries that they couldn't explain and that they were not finding bodies. He said that police dogs could only smell five feet underground, and as such, if the bodies were being buried deep enough, then they would not be detected by those dogs. He then said that he knew a guy that had accidentally killed his girlfriend when they were having rough sex. He said that it wasn't the guy's fault and that it was crazy that a man could make one mistake sexually and spend the rest of his life in prison. So, I have to say two things here. First of all, this is super weird chatter on a first date. The woman said that when the date was over, she walked the other way, away from Kempson, because she felt like there was something seriously wrong about the guy. Also, could she have been more right? Who knows what this man's plan was? It sounds to me like he had something further planned. When the two left, he said, my car is this way, to try and coerce her to come with him. So, who knows what his endgame was on that day also. Thank goodness that that woman went the other way. I would say that, that, that dark topics like that are very strange on a first date, even if they aren't in hindsight after you know that a man was a killer. It also sounds to me like he was trying his stories out on a real person. He wanted to see how someone would react to a story where a man accidentally killed his lover when sexual activity went wrong. Just a very strange conversation indeed. Red flags aplenty, and thankfully that woman saw the flags from a distance. Essentially, that would become what the entire trial would be fought over. 
The trial began on November 4th of 2019 with jury selection, and the defense even managed to get name suppression for Kempson. That meant that his name was kept out of the media in New Zealand. However, his name was published by media in other countries. A major part of that was because the defense didn't want it to get out into the public or even into the minds of the jury or the judge that Kempson was also awaiting trial for rape and assault in two other cases with two other women. The defense would present a man that had awakened from a night of partying and found a young woman dead in his apartment. The defense said that Kempson didn't know what to do, and he panicked. He would lend that Kempson knew that he would not be believed if he told the true story to police, and instead he went into self-preservation mode. The defense would present that Grace had consented to BDSM and rough sex. This defense was looked down on by everyone watching on because it was believed that the case of the defense was to say that Grace's consent led to murder, and was thus her own fault. The prosecution would contend that sexual consent was not grounds for a murder defense. The public viewed this as the defense saying that Grace was indeed responsible for her own death because of her sexual content and her sexual consent. Another key to the case was the fact of intent. In New Zealand, to be charged with murder in any way, shape, or form, intent needs to be proven. So, the major tipping point in this was what Kempson's intent was when he invited Grace to his apartment, and also what his intent was once he received consent for rough sex. To that end, the defense would set out to prove that a person could pass out from a very minimal amount of choking when inebriated and then not come back to consciousness because of that intoxication. The prosecution would in turn call witnesses that testified that Grace would have had to have been choked for 5 to 10 minutes without any letting up to cause her to die from asphyxiation like this. They also testified that there was no way that the choker would not know that the person that they were choking was in extreme duress and on the verge of running out of oxygen. So, was this a man who intended to kill, or was this a man who found himself in an impossible situation by accident? In my opinion, I don't see how there was any panic or shock in Jesse's decisions or, a or actions. He was instantly googling how to get rid of the body the very next morning. Reports said that he also watched pornography and took photos of Grace's body, and of course, he set up another date for himself on Tinder. The prosecution would show evidence from three other women that Kempson liked masochistic and bondage sex, including choking, and had partaken and searched that out before Grace. They would also show security footage of Kempson and Mullane together, video of Kempson renting a carpet cleaning machine to clean out his rental car after he buried Grace, and more. In all, the trial would go on for three weeks, and the jury would go into deliberation for five hours, and when they came back, 
They announced that they had unanimously found Jesse Kempson guilty. He was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 17 years without parole. Kempson, with new lawyers led by Rachel Reed, of course, appealed his conviction. A lot of the basis for their appeal was the claim that they had. They said that the fact that he took photos of Grace's dead body and the fact that he watched pornography after brutally murdering someone didn't make him a monster. Yep, you heard that right. These people predicated their appeal on the fact that they essentially believed that it was not abnormal to do those things after murdering someone or finding a dead body. Reed would say that her client did not get a fair trial and that he was in fact sentenced too harshly. The appeal was dismissed on December 18th of 2020 when Justice Stephen Koss, Justice Patricia Courtney, and Justice Mark Cooper held up the case, the conviction, and the sentence. The suppression order was also lifted on December 22, 2020, and everyone knew what was a badly kept secret by that point anyways. Jesse Kempson was a man who was convicted in October and November of 2020 of rape and assault against two other women. The truth was out. The sad reality is that one of those women, who was an ex-girlfriend of Kempson, came forward later in a documentary and stated that she had come forward and wanted to press charges against Kempson before he even met Grace. She met Kempson on Tinder in 2016, and the two quickly wound up in a relationship together, but she said that she saw the dark side of Kempson early and often. In one particular fight, she said that Kempson had awakened on the couch and told her that he was going to kill her. She said that he had grabbed a knife and chased her around the kitchen and even at one point took her to the ground and held a knife to her throat. She said that he then choked her and whispered in her ear, time to go to sleep. In that case, though, no charges were initially filed because officers told her that it was a case of he said, she said, and that there was no evidence to charge him or convict him with anything. She was given a protection order and a property order, but that was the end of the case until after Grace Mullane was murdered. Kempson's lawyers would contend that in both of those additional trials, the women were heavily exaggerating their stories so that they would be seen as victims and be seen in solidarity with Grace. That absolutely sickens me. I've touched on this before. I obviously understand why there are people who are defense attorneys for a living, but my goodness, that must be the hardest job in the world sometimes. I'm sure that there was zero chance that this was a man who was ramping up his violence and ramping up the way that he treated women while also clearly being a chauvinist and a pathological liar who said whatever he had to in order to get whatever he wanted. There was zero chance of that, right? Everyone is a liar. Well... Everyone except Grace who lost her life, but clearly that may have been her own fault too, right? I sincerely hope that the listeners out there can sense my sarcasm here. 
Anyways, on June 29th of 2021, the Supreme Court dismissed Kempson's application for leave to appeal the verdict, and all of his appeals were officially exhausted after that in terms of trying to overturn his conviction. Jesse Kempson will spend the duration of his sentence at Auckland Prison, a prison that has been designed to provide inmates with rehabilitation instead of punishment. The prison was designed to give inmates more humane conditions and facilities that include televisions, personal showers, and kiosks where they can purchase items at their leisure. I think a week ago that would have been shocking to me, that that's how a prison system works, but as a little aside, I did finally get to do the tour of Kingston Penitentiary here in Ontario at the start of July, and can report that if you don't know it, that is the way that most of our prison systems in the world are treating monsters like this guy. They seem to have even more rights than some of the people living outside of prison that have not committed crimes. In Canada, that is at least a large part of the reason why Paul Bernardo was moved from maximum security prison to a medium security prison. The system believes that it's time for that next step for a man who destroyed many lives. But I suppose that is another hill to die on for another day. As always, here is my call to arms to join me on Patreon or to join me on social media and join the conversation. Interacting with you goners is always awesome, and it gets more eyes on the podcast as well because of metrics or analytics analytics or other words that I don't know enough about. So please come over there and let's chat. Here are two questions to ponder and I will post similarly on socials this week. First, how do you feel about the rough sex murder aspect of this case? Do you feel that there is a chance that this was something sexual that went wrong? If so, how do you deal with that inside of court. Is that still murder? Or do you subscribe to the prosecution that there's no way you can accidentally strangle someone to death without knowing what has happened? Second, the defense said that all of Jesse's actions were in self-preservation because he believed that nobody would believe the true story. Do you think that one's self-preservation can actually extend that far? Is hiding the body instead of telling the truth a natural reaction when finding a deceased person inside of your apartment? Reach out and let me know what you think. Like I always say, I love to hear from all of you goners. Also, if you do enjoy the podcast, please take the time to leave a review and a rating. If you don't like the podcast, though, please do the same. I like to think that things have improved here over 88 episodes now, and I am always open to constructive criticism, and of course, I also rather enjoy compliments. So, reach out. Be well between episodes, and don't forget to come back here for episode 89 next week. If you're in that dating world in any way, shape, or form, please be careful, be diligent, Protect yourself, and in general, just endeavor to be better. Thank you for listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. <laughs>